You're listening to the Situation Today podcast with Golf Business. If you'd like to learn more about the latest business stories in the GCC region, please visit www.golfbusiness.com. My name's Gareth Finsell and I'm the group editor of Golf Business and it's a pleasure to welcome into the studio with us today the CIO of Saxo Bank, Steen Jacobson. Uh, Steen, thank you very much for being with us today. I just wanted to quickly ask, this is obviously a regular trip for you coming to this part of the world, right? Absolutely. Uh, I've been coming to uh, Dubai and the region for the last 15 years my bank, Saxon Bank, has a, has a nice presence here, and uh, we are very happy to be in the region. Great. So we want to talk about the state of the global economy going into 2024. Obviously, we've had quite a few interesting years, especially with the pandemic, the post-pandemic environment. We've had, you know, really high inflation, uh, the high interest rates, the the Fed that has gone on this really aggressive hiking cycle. We've also had supply constraints within the the economy across the globe. What is your forecast for the picture in 2024? Are we going to see an an, an easing up of of interest rates, for example? I think it's pretty clear that the Federal Reserve, and they have already communicated that, that they are done on on the hiking path. What will be transpiring over the course of the balance of 23 will be whether they're actually going to be in a position to you know, publicly say that they're going for interest rate cuts in 24. I think it's, you know, it's it's 50-50 for this year, but absolutely in the early parts of, of 24, they will start to indicate that they will cut interest rate. And the reason for that is pretty simple. As you alluded to, we've seen a significant increase in the nominal interest rate, which actually brought the real rate, which is the difference between the nominal rate and inflation, to a positive 250 basis point, which is unheard of in, in modern U.S. history. But the problem from a financial standpoint is that if you pay real rates of 2.5% in a country that has huge amount of debt, ever-expanding financing needs, you end up in a situation where you're going to bankrupt yourself if you keep that high payments to the investors. So what the Fed needs to contemplate, and that will have a significant impact on interest rate in the in, in the U.S., but also in this region because of the tie-up to that monetary policy, of course, is that Fed is going to argue, listen, if uh, inflation is uh, is back in the bottle, so to speak, the genie is back in the bottle, then we have the ability to cut rates because Obviously, if inflation is coming down and interest rate remain the same, that uh, real rate will actually expand. And what the Federal Reserve seems to want to do is to take it from two and a half to two o five, where it is now, and probably all the way down to one. So the market will, you know, be looking for hundred basis point cuts uh, based on just the inflation outlook. The second part to to your question goes to the state of the U.S. economy. And 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 unlike a lot of people, I don't really buy into the concepts of uh, a soft landing. I, I know it's uh, about 150 years ago I went to school, 
but when I went to to uh, university and did economics degrees, there was no such thing as a as a soft landing. What we did have 150 years ago was a full business cycle, meaning that when you go from excess, which you very well uh, outlined in terms of COVID and the post-pandemic fiscal expansion that we saw, then you normally uh, meet that or you you mitigate that by a cycle downturn. That cycle downturn is in modern uh, politics and in modern central banking not uh, being able to play out. So in other words, you know what we need to ask, the real question of 24, are we actually so much so into a normalization cycle, inflation under control, but would we also allow the economy to go into sort of a negative draft to take out some of the excess? As you and I talked today, you know, we have all-time high for the equity markets, and it's no longer only a story about the big seven stocks. Actually, last night, for the first time this year, we had an all-time high for the 493 stocks as well. Mm. I mean, what's interesting on that point is that often the equities market can be divorced from from the real economy, right? I mean... As a, that is absolutely a critical point because if I look at my and and no one has a good record of predicting anything, but if I look at my predictions uh, this time last year, I was absolutely right about the economy, but I was wrong about the equity market because you have idiosyncratic events like the Silicon Valley Bank in March, which increased liquidity in the system. And uh, later on, of course, uh, whether we like it or not, there was a geopolitical incident uh, in in this region in in the Middle East that also had this impact. So you know, we we you and I can have a very smart and very what we ourselves deem to be a very intelligent conversation about what is going to transpire, but the decision tree will involve one or two unknown uh, events that we can't cater for right now. And you know, talking about those unknown events, we're we're looking to next year and. I think a lot of our our readers and and viewers and listeners would be interested to know about what your thoughts are are on some of the key risks going into 2024. Are there perhaps two or three that are on the horizon that that you're looking at? Yeah, the the most, the, the dominant one, of course, remains Japan simply because Japan has such a central role in, in the world in terms of its trade financing. They're the biggest trade financing country in the world. They have increasingly become a geopolitical power as the skirmish and the sort of technology race between Taiwan and U.S. is, sorry, between the U.S. and China is is ramping up. Of course, Japan is seen as a place where you can produce some of the stuff that you produce in Taiwan. Uh, they have a, you know, automation is a great economy by, by, by any means, but it's also an economy uh, loaded with public sector debt and, and a uh, monitor experiment that is out of this world. Again, going back to my university days, if you told me that, you know, one of the richest countries in the world is going to have debt to GDP of 220% in, in the public space, a fixed uh, bond market in terms of prices and a currency rate that is semi-manipulated. I would say to you, you're absolutely crazy. But that is the, the case. And, and and make no mistakes, your your viewers and listeners needs to know that Japan is, is a civilized country in any sense of the word, but not in financial terms. It is the only you know, grown-up market in a world where you don't have price discovery, as an economist would say. So the ability to actually price money 
on any part of the uh, yield curve in, in Japan is given by, only by one force, and that is the uh, the Ministry of Finance and Bank of Japan in, in coordination. So if you have no price discovery, you are going to end up in a situation where you create a boom and bust economy. And for us, for you and I, for, for, for the local investor, it is important to know why, because Japan is the single biggest investor in overseas bonds. So they are the marginal buyer of GCC bonds, they're the all marginal buyer of real estate bonds, uh, mortgage bonds, uh, US bonds. So if they run into trouble, if they have to abandon what they have in place right now, the yield curve control, uh, which means they are forcing interest rate to be uh, artificially low. If they abandon that, let's imagine it goes to full price discovery. Market is pricing it relative to inflation. Japanese rates could go from less than 1% to in excess of 3%. And that would carry over immediately to, to premium increasing in yield terms for Europe, uh, GCC bonds, and, and the US. So that's one of the, 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 the outliers that we need to keep an eye on. And, and, and as we end the year... Uh, Japan continues to slow walk towards abandoning it. They rhetorically is indicating they will do it, but uh, I call it a slow walk for a reason. I'm just back from Tokyo, and I can tell you there's no way in hell that they are going to uh, they're going to give away with the YCC because they're caught. But that is a single big risk. The other risk is that, uh, and I, and I think this is more a market perspective. I think it's always good at the end of the year to tally up what did well in the past year and what did uh, uh, and what did poorly. I mean, what did poorly was commodities and energy prices, relatively speaking, uh, food prices. And I think uh, you very often find the best trades in what has gone down the most, partly because of mean reversion, but also because if prices are down, there was probably in that year a specific reason why it went down. Uh, so for me, the outlier that, uh, you know, Marginally positive for this reading, but marginally negative for the rest of the week. Energy prices coming back. I feel something like natural gas trading at almost all-time lows uh, is interesting. We see food prices where we have a world which is growing in terms of numbers, uh, where the pain of what is being discussed, uh, discussed, discussed at COP28, the, the marginal increases in in in, uh, in, uh, in temperatures across the world means that some crop is at the maximum capacity and actually probably temperatures exceeding what these uh, crops can deal with. That's why this year we've seen uh, uh, palm oil, olive oil, we've seen uh, orange juice, we have seen coconuts. All of these produces are under severe uh, and, and high prices because simply there isn't enough supply. So food prices, uh, a second big one. And the third one would be that inflation comes back because now we're so much ingrained into this buying the concept that inflation is going lower. And it's you know, to be honest, fundamentally, it's kind of ironic because if you think about the aspiration of governments and, and public sectors across the globe, they want to do more green transformation. They want to do more cybersecurity. They want to do more energy infrastructure. They want to build uh, more and, and better defense structures. They want more policing of borders. They want more social policies. As far as I know, none of these items that I just mentioned are free of charge. And more importantly, they are also they are also inflationary in nature. So maybe the surprise is that we get you know a good start in terms of inflation, but in the second part of the year, inflation comes roaring back uh, relatively to expectations. And when you say relative to expectations, does it come roaring back in an aggressive way, or or will it be more of a mild uptick? 
I think for the market to and and you're asking for uh, you know fat tails or uh, or blacks or gray swans, I think we are then discussing a rowing back and rowing back could be food price. I mean, I think you know we have El Nino, which is making the temperature globally warmer, the 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 ocean warmer. I think there's a real risk that that food prices come into focus. I'm pretty sure when you and I sit, hopefully next year in the same chair and and so forth that uh, the past year has been one where we saw dramatic increases in, in, in food prices being the driver one. And the second driver, of course, is that into the geopolitical uh, angle, there's a, you know, we could see, a you know, geopolitical risk is now price of zero. It could come back. It could be $5, $10 on, 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 the, on the oil easily with, of course, on top of that, OPEC trying to engineer a higher price uh, for, for themselves. So, you know, rowing back would be the surprise. And uh, I still see uh, it's not a 50-50 chance, but uh, I see a 25% probability uh, in particularly uh, food prices going through the roof next year. I think one country that we haven't spoken about yet is China. You mentioned Japan and, and many people are now comparing China to to Japan. Obviously, China has this aging population. Uh, it went through this really rapid growth expansion over the last few decades it, seems to have really slowed down now. Uh, what do you make of, of, of the Chinese market going into next year? First, first of all, it, 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 it's a sad testament, and, uh, but, uh, but a real fact. No one's ever made money investing in, in, uh, in Chinese equities. If you look at the last year, the last three years, the last five years, the last 10 years, last 20, 20 years, it's a market that's actually going nowhere. And and it's kind of surprising, you know, because of course uh, the success of the Chinese economy has been uh, one one of the biggest stories, uh, maybe except for this region uh, to compare with. Uh, but but what is behind it is really that you have a state-owned enterprise uh, business model. Basically, you're allowing the banks to be the facilitator of credit. These banks are maxed out in terms of their capacity. They have now capital constraints because they haven't been. Give, haven't been given additional capital since they IPO'd in 2005, 2008, that period. Uh, and, and a lot of the measures they're doing to address the issues you raise has been traditional. It's been piecemeal. It's been you know supporting the real estate sector because you need to be kept alive. So it's, it's a little bit of uh, the classic analogy of that you, you're treating the patient uh, with uh, – uh, for the symptoms, but you're not really trying to do something about the actual disease. But I think what is also important to know, and 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 again, uh, highlighting something that is is critical for 24 is that uh, the uh, the China China has a five year cycle. That five year cycle is starting now, and in March we will have the you know the next five year being outlined in terms of its policy recommendations. I think they have room to be more aggressive because, and it's kind of ironic with the competition going on with U.S., but because U.S. monetary policy is now on a downward trajectory in terms of interest rate, that gives them more room because they are linking their own currency and they're linking to some extent their monetary policy to the U.S. So it probably gives them some room to be more aggressive in coming up with a solution to to a system that is stuck in, in the mud, so to speak. Uh, and and to get out of the mud, they really need to improve productivity. They need to increase productivity, and they need to reverse some of the very harsh uh, policies they've had on the private sector. If you know, if if you're a little bit skeptical, and I am, then the success of China has really been driven by the 
private sector, not the public sector. And as we over the last two uh, cycles with Xi Jinping has seen that the the public sector has become larger and not smaller. Uh, we also seen that the result is net net that the 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 marginal growth has come down from an eight nine handle to probably today somewhere between three and four percent potential. And looking also at the growth spots in the world right now, uh, we're here in the UAE, which is right next to Saudi Arabia, which has had some some incredible growth, GDP growth in recent years. Um, this part of the world really seems to be up and coming. But would you classify the likes of, of Saudi Saudi as part of the, the major growth spots in the world or, or are you seeing other places? No, uh, no. And, and I think you're pointing out something that is essential and probably, and I don't know why I'm using that as a timeline, but since the Ukraine crisis, we have seen an increased fragmentation in the world. And, and and that has a bad side, but but in capital structure terms, in terms of consumption of capital, what is what is immensely interesting for me as a, as a, as an investor is that the countries you mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, even the India, the region around here, all of them is consuming more domestic capital. So in the past, this region was a massive capital exporter to the rest of the world. Uh, and now all of a sudden they're consuming all this capital domestically, which means that it's it's not only benefiting the local economies and the local businesses, but it's also benefiting the growth outlook for these economies. So instead of being someone who export exclusively, you are now trying to strike balances uh, across the board, uh, primarily for 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 a domestic audience, but also you know. Uh, as in the case with Saudi and 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 and, and India as well, uh, as are probably the two most dominant players in this uh, region, uh, it, it's also the case that they 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 want to be seen as being open and uh, for business, open for 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 getting uh, marginal, of course, uh, workers and 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 information and technology to go to these places. So so it, it's a big t- sh- uh, segment segment change and and macro change that. The, the the high growth is actually countries that have a huge amount of, of uh, domestic consumption of capital. Saudi Arabia, India, to some extent, uh, China is doing the same thing. Uh, but as you go across Indonesia, Brazil, with the recent, Argentina, with the recent changes of the political landscape, these countries are resource economies and big consumer economies. All of them have changed to a model where we're going to go for the domestic audience, both in terms of support, but also in terms of the capital we have, we're not going to just blindly export the money overseas. Mm. So that that are the, this is the growth engine, which also ends up in in a call that is probably with lower U.S. interest rate as the sort of the consensus and and the main driver early parts of the year. Probably emerging market will do pretty well, and the non newly emerged from emerging market like the KCC countries will probably do extremely well in in this environment. I find it interesting that you mentioned Argentina as part of that mix because they've had a really big political change there with their new president who's come in. He's, I mean, some have said that he's almost Donald Trump-like in stature. Um, does he not seem to be more of a populist than anything else, or do you think that he'll actually be able to make some real changes on the ground? Also, this region, everyone who's elected is populist. I mean, I think the same can be said for, for, for the election in Brazil. Uh, we'd recently have uh, in Europe an election in the Netherlands where the far right, uh, Wilders, uh, got got uh, the biggest amount of votes. So I think 
what the world is also one of the risks we didn't mention is that uh, 24 is a big election year. Uh, we, we mentioned the elections just passed, but for next year we have European Commission elections. We have probably a UK election. We have certainly a US election. We may have a South African election. We may have, uh, you know, uh, the election being called uh, in a, in a number of countries next year. And and all of them are driven by one thing only, and that is the anti-establishment. You know, it, it's kind of interesting that I think. My forecast for every election going forward will be that the candidate that wins and get the most votes will be the one that is the least establishment and the person, they don't proactively select the person, but it's the person that people hate the least. Uh, we had some success uh, in calling Brexit and Trump as uh, president ahead of time. And what the, the not because we were smart, but simply because we realized that in the case of Clinton versus uh, Trump, it was a, it, Mrs. Clinton, with all due respect, was the mon, most unelectable official ever in history. There was no way in hell they were going to vote her in. Similarly, in the Brexit vote, you saw that the Yes campaign talked down so much to the constituents that they ended up actually aligning, uh, aligning, uh, getting getting unfriended with them and, and talking down to them. Are you going to lose 2,133 pounds in one year? I mean, this is the same institution that can't forecast interest rate for another two days, right? Now all of a sudden they can tell you how much they lose. So you lose the ability to navigate the center. The center has disappeared. There's only left and right. And of course, in a situation where they have huge amount of inequality globally, where the disposable income has been under attack for all the inflation that we've seen, I, I, I think it's it's pretty pretty interesting uh, in in the in its social economics evolutionary cycle. I think we end this. I used to call it pretended extend, pretending you have a plan and and extending by buying time. This this is the final leg. There's no doubt that 24 will be driven by the U.S. election. UK election, the Euro, EU Commission in Europe, uh, and as such, uh, it's probably more of the same, but more of the same to the extent that it's, let's use the, a, a critical analogy, a baseball analogy. We're in the ninth inning. I mean, we may whether we at the bottom or or at the top of the ninth inning, but we definitely where you're going to send in the reliever to 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 close down the game. But we will have one more overall round of uh, you know nonsense in economic terms, as I would call it. I think something else where we can extend the metaphor of the ninth innings is looking at the COP28 summit, which is just concluding or supposed to be concluding as we're speaking right now, as we're recording this this podcast. Um, but there's been a lot of promises there around investments in renewables. And, and just as a last question, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on that space. Do you, I mean, do you think it's a, it's a space that private investors are able to get behind sufficiently? in order to drive real change? Well, the answer is pretty clear. Over the last 18 months, the uh, that sector has been the worst performing sector. And it actually goes back to my, my main point about US monetary policy, and that is that real rates came from a very negative place, minus 300, minus 400. Then everything was possible. When money is actually costing not only nothing, but the negative uh, in real terms, then you can finance everything in the world, and everyone wants to do everything, and everyone wants mm. to be the good, uh, the the good person in the room, the most vogue person in the room. Mm. But now we end up, and, and and again, I refer to the Dutch election. The three things that drove the Dutch election was, of course, I'm not saying because it's right, but you know, it was anti-immigration because Wilders is a representative, of, but surprisingly, it was also anti-green. 
So there, there's been, and, and we did an outrageous prediction a few years back where we said there's going to be a rain check on green. The reason we did that is that exactly the economics of it doesn't work. I mean, if, if you really want to change the world, you got to be in a marketplace. And in the marketplace, you're going to pay the actual your rate of the market, unless you're in Japan, of course. But but you're going to pay the market rate of what goes on. And at plus 200 basis point, you need a huge amount of productivity built into these solutions. It doesn't mean that the the uh, the objective is wrong. It doesn't mean that the trajectory needs to change. What needs to change is the way we get there. And I will make a very brave call. I will say that inside, what is it, 23 now, Inside the next 15 years, the marginal cost of energy will go to zero. I really think that the solution to the problem, the solution that we need to figure out is that instead of going for all of these sort of dormant uh, alternatives like wind and, 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 and sun, which in, in, in energy output is somewhere between burning coal and burning wood, we need, we need you know, output which is in excess we never solved any technological and scientific uh, problem in the world by going backward in history i.e burning wood of coal but but i think something like uh, fusion energy will have a huge future the the ai capability the computer power that we can we can harvest today means that Sometimes between 2030 and 2035, we will start to put uh, fusion energy into the energy jade work. So probably the solution is where no one sees it, which is alternative to the alternatives. And I think more basic investment and, and, and mostly, and I think COP28 is, is good for one thing uh, for sure. And that is concentrating the minds and the money and the political will to actually find a solution. I personally think we've gone down the wrong road because the investment has been negative for the investors and for society because we are still behind in terms of achieving what we need. But on the other hand, I think there'll be a huge catch-up effect over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. And imagine what we do with when marginal cost of energy is zero. All we can start to desalinate water across the globe. We can make sure that the areas which is severely hit by by draft, by by flooding, and all these areas can be having pumps or having water coming. We can do a huge amount of of efficiency improvement in terms of education and everything. I mean, basically. If if we get the marginal cost of energy close to zero, we will end up in a world where we have the biggest productivity gain in history of mankind. So I'm actually very positive on the solution to, uh, to the green transformation, but not based on what COP28 is suggesting, which to me is too traditional. We need to find that path that gives us reduction in the CO2, greener, more efficient, cheaper, and first and foremost, productive uh, energy. It's all about the different ways of thinking. Stian Jacobson, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great question. Great audience. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Situation Today podcast with Golf Business. If you'd like to learn more about the latest business stories in the GCC region, please visit www.golfbusiness.com.